Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We run courses designed to help clinicians apply a person-centered approach to their clinical practice. We've got our course dates for the year up on our website, tkex.org, and also check out our Facebook discussion group for more. Today, I'm excited to introduce physiotherapist and researcher Karimi Mescalto, whom I was lucky to meet at this year's San Diego Pain Summit. And Karimi, I hope I pronounced your, your name correctly there. We were chatting before to make sure. Yeah, that was perfect. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. And today we are going to dive into some of Karimi's research and unpack, explore the concept of power and how power relates to the work that we do as clinicians. So Karimi, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And for the listeners to hear a bit more about your background and, and yourself, what, what is your story? Oh, well, um, so I'm a physiotherapist from Brazil. So I graduated in 2011 uh, at the University of Rio Grande do Norte. Uh, in Brazil. So Rio Grande do Norte is the state in the northeast of Brazil. So I'm uh, proud to be, you know, uh, a physio from there. Um, and to be honest, after my I graduated, I kind of only wanted to know about, you know, clinical work. I worked as a clinician for around seven years before I did my PhD here in Australia. And I was always, um, you know, interested in deepening my knowledge on the musculoskeletal area. Um, so that's my area of expertise, musculoskeletal injuries, um, more especially, um, I was treating chronic pain patients, so patients with chronic pain and musculoskeletal pain. And I did a couple of courses, so I did a post-graduation um, at the same university I graduated from, so the Federal University of Rio Grande do Norte, uh, was more related to sports injury and musculoskeletal injury as well. And then I think three years after that, I did a clinical, um, a graduate certificate in clinical physiotherapy in Perth uh, here in Australia. So I came here, spent eight months. Uh, I learned from the best, Peter Sullivan, Helen Slater, um, Tim Mitchell. Um, and I actually deepened my knowledge on manual therapy and the biopsychosocial model of, um, of health. Um, I came back to Brazil. That was in 2014. I came back, I uh, went back to Brazil, still working especially um, with clinical, um, did a lot of clinical work there. And I started later on um, just um, working as a clinical educator in one university in Brazil. So that I started to see research a little bit differently. So I didn't wanted to know much more about research before then. Um, so as a clinical educator, uh, I kind of felt this necessity of understanding research a little bit deeper. So I did my master's in rehabilitation science. So in Brazil is a little bit different from here. So in order for you to be an academic or be in university, you need to go through a master's degree and then a PhD. So it's very unusual to go straight to a PhD uh, program uh, after your, your undergrad. So I did my master's. And then that was the, the, my drive to actually do a PhD. So I was really interested in research. Um, so I kind of was starting after my master's, which I finished in 2018, looking for PhD opportunities. 
Um, and interestingly, uh, I was attending a, the World Congress on Pain in Boston. And I had a friend there, Dr. Natalia Costa. So she's at the University of Sydney um, now. And she was doing a PhD back then and was doing here at the University of Queensland in, in Brisbane. And she said, oh, hey, there is a, a, a possibly one of my supervisors. Um, they have a spot available. Say so they earned a grant and there will be probably a PhD position available. Are you interested? And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great, you know, finishing my master's, going to a PhD. So the project seems really seemed really interesting. It was about the biopsychosocial model in low back pain care. So two passions of mine combined. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the rest is actually history. I applied for the position. Um, I was very lucky to be supervised by my primary supervisor, was, um, Dr. Jenny Setchell. So they are a physio. Um, and, but with interest in sociology. So that's why I'm also talking about power and, um, you know, sociological concepts in my PhD. And uh, my other supervisors, Associate Professor Rebecca Olson, and I also had Professor Paul Hodges uh, in my advisory team. So I was very lucky um, to have them, you know, this powerful uh, team uh, like guiding me through my PhD, which I finished uh, last year. So I finally, um, you know, got conferred. And yeah, that became my interest in now my interest lies on still chronic pain, but qualitative research, which before my PhD, I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what power dynamics were, or social or cultural determinants of health were. So I touched on that, um, on, on this broader aspects of care in my PhD. And now I'm uh, starting in a couple of months uh, uh, as a postdoc researcher uh, here at the University of Queensland as well uh, in the department uh, Recover under the supervision of Professor Michelle Sterling. So yeah, that's a little bit of my history. Um, story so far <laughs> wow what a journey and congratulations on completing a phd i hear that takes Thank quite you. the toll and quite the efforts <laughs> and so dr karimi from now on if oh, you so yeah. choose to accept <laughs> and um, yeah it's a very, very interesting title you don't you don't you never get used to this type of title do you uh, yeah. but yeah interesting <laughs> it's it's so cool to hear your journey from uh, it sounds like more of a musculoskeletal sports injury focus to now diving into sociological concepts which are very uh, I, I feel different to the traditional forms of physiotherapy trainings what, what was that journey like this is a out of curiosity how did you kind of uh, go across and transition and expand into uh, different concepts oh yeah that's a great question because it was definitely a very um, uh, like interesting journey. I've never thought, even looking, you know, at the uh, at the project's title, uh, moving beyond the biopsychosocial model uh, in low back pain care. So I never thought that I would actually go deeper into uh, sociological thinking, sociological concepts, and actually enjoy it. Um, it was not a, an easy journey because the way, as you know that physios, uh, and I include myself um, into it, and, you know, uh, think about health is totally different 
from a, a more sociological way of thinking about health, right? We usually um, don't, although we have certain aspects, you know, that we that we see at the university that we learn that we kind of explore, but it's a a very constrained way. We still lie within this very biomedical model, even if we are trying to uh, move beyond that. But I think medicine and you know, phys even the word uh, physiotherapy is more related to the physical aspects of care naturally, right? So there is a lot of, there's a lot that we can change and the change has been going through quite a lot, which is amazing. But uh, yeah, I think through the sociological thinking of, of health, especially like using these concepts to consider more about society or, uh, or how physiotherapy per se, right? Our profession thinks about the body, thinks about health because we still are very um, limited sometimes to these biomedical aspects of care. So I think moving from that to more a sociological way was really interesting, shifted my thinking quite a lot. And especially because I only use qualitative research in uh, qualitative methodologies in my PhD. So that was still a like a huge shift. Before my PhD, I'd never heard about qualitative research before. I never conducted any qualitative research. Um, so this shifting this paradigm, right, from a more objective way of thinking about research to a more embracing subjectivity, uh, understanding more people's experiences, ideas about the world and how the world is constructed. Yeah, it was definitely quite a shift. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it, but it, it was it, it was a challenge because we are socialized as physios to think in a certain way, to act in a certain way. And then when we have that disruption, right, that, uh, that change completely, then it's, it's quite a, uh, a different way of thinking, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and speaking for exercise physiologists, that's very much also the case. It's quite a, a shift from the, uh, the roles almost that we are embedded within through our training and through our professional title. Um, and if we expand and define as well the, the concepts, one of the key concepts in, in your paper is power if we start maybe with a, a definition uh, for, for listeners who may not um, have come across some of the, the concepts before. Yeah, um, so power is, is one of the, the concepts that go throughout my thesis and uh, some of my papers as well. And, you know, power can be conceptualized in many ways, um, in different ways. We can think about, you know, muscle power, or we can think about energy. But when it, terms, uh, when it comes to sociology and the specific philosopher that I'm using, which is Michel Foucault. Um, so Michel's uh, Foucault concept of power uh, really speaks to um, th that power is everywhere. It's not something that people hold, right? It's not something that I hold as a physio or the patient, or um, it's not about the institutions either. Although, you know, if you think about power, you think about um, the institution of law, um, of police. So they exercise a type of power that is very powerful and very um, clear and objective. But for Foucault, power is, in, is, is not something that you hold, that is not something from institutions, it's everywhere, right? So, um, and his theories of power is really connected to 
um, his idea, the connection of power and knowledge and how through um, this, you know, this connection between power and knowledge, we come to understand the world in a, in a certain way and, and accept certain ways of thinking and acting and certain truths. So for example, as physio, uh, and I, uh, I can make an example of myself, as a physio before my PhD, right, um, that I only had contact with quantitative research, with numbers. So I really thought that evidence-based practice was supposed to be very objective. It was supposed to be very um, free from bias. And uh, you, you have the researcher as, as someone outside of, of, the, of what is going on on the research. So that's the truth, right, that I accepted through my knowledge as being the only truth about physiotherapy or about research. But then after my PhD, I understood that, for example, through qualitative research, through understanding people's experiences, uh, perspectives, uh, and understandings of the world, that physiotherapy can be something else, can not only be objective, but can be objective and subjective that we can understand the patient through a different lens, not only through questionnaires, but also what they understand about their, for example, the pain, which is my, my area, or how can, you know, understanding their identity or the world that they live, their conditions, um, like the social context, like socioeconomic status, um, health literacy, and all of those things also are part of how they construct pain. So, when we think about power, uh, you can you can think about um, how you know the objective thinking, uh, this very quantitative way of thinking about the world is very powerful. It has a you know this connection of knowledge and knowledge as a something fixed, something objective is very very ingrained in physiotherapy. And then um, you know if you think about uh, qualitative research and this, this subjective meaning, uh, it it has perhaps is a little bit marginalized or is not as recognized as evidence or science sometimes. So you, you can see how power is not only related to, it's very fluid, right? So this is in, in research, an example in research. An example in clinical practice would be, um, you know, even the mundane things, uh, you can see, you can think about power as the physio being the, the powerful one, right? Like within the interaction, physios or healthcare professionals usually have more power than patients. But that's not, not always the case. Um, for example, I treated a patient, he was a, a surgeon, a thoracic surgeon uh, back in, in Brazil. So he had more power in the interaction than I did, for example. So it's not something that I hold as a I held as a healthcare professional because the patient sometimes have more power they are within the medical um, system you know they're doctors or they're more senior than you so my age my even my personality you know my uh, my gender also plays a role if you are interacting with a male more um, you know uh, like more senior than you uh, stuff things like that. So you can see how power is not fixed. You can also play a little bit with this power dynamics to level um, the field if you want to, um, to make, you know, patients more comfortable um, and etc. So yeah, so th this concept of power, that power is everywhere. Uh, it's quite difficult sometimes to grasp, 
but we can we can think of power how is you know even on the 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 information that you have on the, your clinic's walls. Um, so, for example, one one example from from my research was that we always say that you know physiotherapy must move from a biomedical model to a more multidimensional model. But for example, if you think about the pictures on the walls, uh, in one of the clinics that I observed in my PhD, it was only about trigger points, uh, muscle, um, you know, muscles, um, bones, joints. So the clinic, the clinical environment was kind of portraying the body as almost like, you know, only made of, of tissues or of muscles, of trigger points, and etc., and not only like this human aspects of of a body, for example. So you can see how power circulated on the walls, moving, you know, the the focus perhaps to a more biomedical uh, way of thinking about the body. So yeah, so thinking about power is very complex, but it, yeah, would be more related that it it can be everywhere. And it's, I think the starting point is, as you said, that the there is power in knowledge and the knowledge uh, can be both objective and subjective. So maybe like it's a helpful reflection for clinicians starting out in exploring the concept of power and in, in, um, exploring some of the epistemology that we hold and the assumptions that we might have with our own knowledge. That's a great example of we, we know the body and biomechanics and anatomy, but we have already a particular lens that we view the body from and the body can be uh, so much more. And there, there's a human uh, attached to that body, we can say that we can um, really uh, respect and acknowledge the knowledge that they have over their body uh, on top of what we have. So I think it's a, I think that can be a helpful starting point for clinicians um, and really appreciating the human subjective experience of pain on top of that. So uh, another example that comes to my mind would be scans and maybe something might not show up in a scan, but the human in front of us can be experiencing very real significant distress and pain um, regardless of the scan result. So it can be easy to dismiss their personal subjective experience because there's no objective features of tissue-based damage or pathology, but that can negate that human and they can feel invalidated. So I think that's where some other examples of power might show up in, in our clinical practice. Um, would there be as well other, um, other, I'm just thinking of clinicians that might not be uh, uh, recognizing how power can influence uh, clinical practice. Would there be other um, examples from your work or from even your experience with introducing the the subject of power uh, any helpful starting points oh, that's a great um, question I think one of the concepts as well really linked um, to power for me uh, is critical reflexivity um, so critical reflexivity is actually to reflect right on the assumptions that you mentioned like the assumptions that we hold, about physiotherapy, about the body, for example, about what we need, we should do as physios, right? So the assumptions um, that we have about the world um, as well, um, and the beliefs and the attitudes, and really 
uh, thinking how our own subjectivity actually plays a role in that. So for example, uh, as I mentioned, right, uh, uh, myself, or even in my research, when you see a patient who is more senior, who uh, acts very confidently, who um, have this, this posture or this very certain way of saying things. So kind of sometimes plays a role as the expert, right, in the room. So the way that we say things, the way that we are very, uh, very certain with certain things makes us the expert, right? We construct ourselves as experts. But perhaps someone who is very different, so someone, you know, who is not a very senior, who perhaps is a junior physio, perhaps the way that they say also kind of have this um, power laid out differently, right? So we can either show ourselves as very powerful, as very, um, uh, even through, through the experience, because sometimes we think, oh, we need to be very confident and we do, but sometimes the patient also needs very, you know, for us to be vulnerable to, you know, the, the things that we say, perhaps we can, what do you think? Right, like bringing the the patient in as well. So the concept of you know critical reflexivity comes to understanding. Okay, so what assumptions do I have about the world, uh, about how I act things, uh, about assumptions about how to act as a physio, and how my characteristics, right, and my my gender, uh, my social economic status where I'm from, for example, I'm from Brazil, is very different sometimes from someone who is, um, you know, from Australia or Global North. So all these characteristics and all these identities play a role as well in how we interact with patients. So power there, and we know that certain groups, you know, um, depending on your socioeconomic status, depending on your gender, uh, depending on where you grew up, how you grew up, all of these, you know, interferes or impacts on the power and privilege that you have in the world. And it will impact on how you you act with your patients, right? So um, this concept of critical reflexivity, it's really helpful to actually think about, okay, when I see my patient, I sometimes already make a lot of assumptions about them. Even what is written in the on the chart, even how they look like. I already make assumptions. And that as, these assumptions can be quite harmful, right? We can assume that people perhaps don't, uh, we assume people's um, uh, literacy level, education level. We assume people's um, uh, level sometimes of English here in Australia. So all of these, uh, all of these um, characteristics impacts on power as they're in, like interacts with power. So one example, uh, so I talked to, um, uh, during my research, I talked to a disabled woman and I'm saying disabled woman because she identified herself um, like that. And she uh, was um, you know, treating her low back pain, like she had low back pain and was treating that with a psychologist. So I also observed different therapists uh, in my research and one of the things that uh, we chat a little bit uh, after her session, uh, and one of the things that she said was like, oh, it is really interesting how healthcare professionals, because I'm a disabled woman, they think that I, I, I have no education. 
and they assume that I don't have a higher degree or sometimes they treat me uh, like I'm, you know, I'm not their equal or something like that. So those assumptions for her as a disabled woman was very negative and very harmful because she was highly educated. Um, you know, she expressed herself really well. And for her, like for sharing uh, with me that healthcare professionals sometimes uh, stigmatize her as being a disabled because she was a disabled woman. And then they made all those assumptions around it. So you can see how within that, the power dynamics uh, in that interaction were, when she had with healthcare professionals was really not leveled. You know, the, 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 the physios made, a, um, the healthcare professionals, not physios, but the healthcare professionals made a lot of assumptions and, um, you know, put themselves in a higher uh, state than, um, you know, instead of treating her um, as, you know, equal in the decision-making of her treatment and, and so forth. There's uh, so much in there, the, the, the key concept of that uh, critical reflexive practice and looking at our own lenses and perspectives and the assumptions that we hold. Um, and I feel like these can be so invisible and uh, unspoken that kind of like a unwritten, maybe even some like rules that we should be acting this way or um, this is generally, uh, we assume how people will behave or what they are thinking and um, we place our own uh, biases in our clinical interactions without having that, whether that be through journaling or supervision, mentoring, discussions with colleagues or having that space to practice that reflexive um, re reflexivity. Um, it, we can so easily keep that these assumptions invisible throughout our entire career. I, th I think that's the, this is the kind of line of thought that, that I'm thinking, and hence why hopefully um, we can express the importance of of doing this for not only our patients but arguably for ourselves. I'm, I'm sure um, a helpful practice is looking at our own experiences if we've ever been in that patient role. And what that has been like, that felt lived experience of, of being uh, in that position and maybe being in uh, less kind of authority for our own bodies and our own medical health decisions. Uh, maybe starting from there and, and starting at looking at those assumptions and what it was like for us. Um, I think that can be a helpful starting point. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. Like even uh, before my PhD, I had no idea about you know, no discussions about power dynamics within um, our universities. And that's fine because sometimes we think that these are outside of our of our scope or outside of physiotherapy. Oh no, this is not physiotherapy. So I, I, I really think like, and, and you said it correctly, like uh, it's it not only thinking about these concepts, like power, critical reflexivity, understanding who I am and my identities and how that impacts how I see the world and how I see patients and how I see other people and the assumptions that I make, right, has been really, uh, really amazing and really transformation. Like for me as a physio, as a human, as an educator, um, has changed completely the way that I, that I see the world and see myself and how I can actually make, because we all want, right, a more collaborative practice. I think that's what we want as clinicians. We don't intend 
to be the, the expert and telling patients what to do. And it, it's not intentional that sometimes we do that. Sometimes it's very unintentional uh, because we really want to make our patients feel better um, and help them uh, throughout their journey, um, right? But then unfortunately, sometimes we, we, we make these unintended harms and we make these unintended assumptions. As the example that I gave of the, um, you know, the disabled woman saying that she, um, that they made assumptions about her education. It, I, I truly believe that it was not unintentional, right? They didn't want to do that. They didn't want to do any harm, but they did it anyway, even if it was unintended. So I think it's really uh, important for us to really critically reflect on those things and how sometimes our words or our actions impact patients um, in, in, yeah, perhaps make them feel less comfortable with uh, healthcare professionals, with physios. So it's really, um, it's really an ongoing process to critically reflect on those things um, and how power interacts in our uh, consultations and how it affects the way that we, we see patients, yeah. I think the, um, that point of it's never, or very, very rarely intentional that we don't, you know, we're all trying to help and we're all, it's because we care so much often that we can um, not practice or not have that time to reflect on our practice because we are wanting to help as many people as much as much as we can and we, we, we play a role that we don't realize we're playing um, and and I really love that point that we can um, have a bit of compassion for ourselves that we will make mistakes and we'll, in, in now and we've made mistakes in the past and we'll probably um, need to continually practice that um, reflexivity um, and the, the concept of power often shows up in in two parts of our practice and, and the first one's kind of almost I'm concerned fearful that it might become a, a new buzzword of shared decision making of just like a thing that we do to people um, that can miss out on that spirit of collaboration that you touched on so maybe we'll start there and then talk about informed consent or up to you, Karimi, start wherever. Um, when, how does power show up in shared decision-making and then also in informed consent? Mm, that's, um, yeah, very good example. So, uh, and that I, I say for myself, right? Like the shared decision-making, it, it's very complex uh, because sometimes I think um, it's, as I mentioned, like I'm all up for collaborative practices, but we really need to be careful with when saying, oh, we, we need to perhaps empower patients for us to have a shared decision-making, right? So we really need to critically reflect who's, um, you know, which patients actually have the power and the privilege um, to, to make their own decisions, right? Or to really speak to those in a very, uh, you know, comfortable way. And sometimes people are socialized to just, oh, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that's okay. So that's also shared decision-making, right? So you really need to see your patient, see the patient in front of you sometimes because of, you know, cultural practices or uh, because of their culture, they're really, yeah, they look at healthcare professionals as a hierarchy model, like if they're on the top and that's totally fine. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Uh, but yeah, so shared decision-making for me is a really complex 
it's a, a lot about conversation and really making sure that the patient is comfortable of making those decisions. Um, if they're happy for you to do it, that's fine. But you also have that moment of, you know, what you prefer. Um, is that okay? Because, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes those patients from perhaps lower socioeconomic status, lower literacy, they have more uh, problems in identifying their goals, for example, right? We are very goal-oriented. Um, and so we really need to support those patients to um, to actually build up on those um, decision-making processes and not only assume that, okay, I need to empower my patients, I need to share them, what do you think? And then not say anything, you know, but really understanding where your patients are coming from and um, how you kind of level, make, um, you know, trust is a really important process of, of the, uh, of that relationship, of the, the, the clinical um, relationship. And, it, and it, we really need to be careful not taking that for granted, but not using that as a form of, of okay, I really need to make the patient trust me so they can do whatever I want <laughs> kind of thing. So sometimes it's a trap, right? So we really need to be, be careful with that. And, you know, we, we have more power usually in the, uh, in the, in the consultation. So we really need to be aware that as healthcare professionals, we, we held a certain status and we really need to make sure to level the playing field. So the patient is comfortable in, in sharing what their thoughts, even disagreement, right? Because disagreement for us can be quite challenging sometimes if the patient doesn't want to do something or they, they mention, oh no, I don't do that. But so we really need to be be non-judgmental of um, patients' preference, even if it's disagreeing with what you say. Yeah, that's what I think uh, maybe about, um, you know, shared decision-making. And informed consent is the same thing, right, uh, or, or similar. We really need to be careful with, um, you know, explaining really well uh, because the patient historically, and if, if we think about Michel Foucault's concept of power, we, the the medical um, dominance was really is really something you know within us um, nowadays right so you have the doctor or the healthcare professional even when as you know we are physios but when we go as patients to a consultation sometimes it just oh if you're saying that's okay <laughs> yeah I have no expertise you tell me what to do or that's totally fine so sometimes we are not very comfortable in, in disagreeing or not saying that is not okay. So the informed consent needs to be very, very clear. Um, it should be, you know, saying it's okay to disagree with me. It's okay if you don't want to do that and not assuming that everyone will like a certain thing or will act on a certain, certain way. So I think that's um, something that comes to my mind when we speak about shared decision-making and also um, informed consent and linking to power. <laughs> as Absolutely. Well. It, they're so uh, complex and the uh, it's not going to be a simple uh, Instagram or Twitter kind of post to explain all the dynamics and the interactions and the nuances within the, the context uh, of that interaction because I think that you, you spoke to uh, trust and the other, uh, which is an essential part of that therapeutic alliance um, and other 
common terms that clinicians might have come across would be rapport building and um, all these concepts, um, the person kind of personal skills um, can still be seen through a, I guess, reductionistic lens of being applied to the patient as opposed to uh, uh, being applied with them. I think and that, that, that shift can be very helpful to really experience and see what that collaborative dynamic might be like and then allow for that space where patients can disagree with you because it's it's not a reflection on you because suddenly you've gone from being that directive kind of expert role because we're generally taught that way to now being maybe by their side and being more of a guide or a coach and that perspective might help uh, clinicians start practicing through a more collaborative way and being okay with disagreements, being okay with a patient saying, no, you're the boss, you tell me, but at least you had that conversation to start with. Yeah, exactly. And I totally agree. And I really like, um, you know, this idea of not doing things um, for the patient or, uh, you know, uh, but with, right. In collaboration. Uh, I think it's really important. Actually, it, it makes the, you know, a whole lot of, of a difference when we think about collaborating with your patient and understanding and, you know, being creative sometimes. I think creativity and, um, you know, exploration and being open to whatever comes up. I think it's really important because uh, you never know. You never know how your patient is going to react. And one word that I that I really um think we need to be very cautious, uh, cautious and careful about is compliant, right? Like the patient needs to comply or, uh, oh, this patient is non-compliant. So I think, and that the words has have power on itself, right? And what it means to the patient. Um, being compliant is just, yeah. It, does that mean that it's doing everything that you want? Because that doesn't work. You know, people have different experiences. Uh, perhaps they went through some trauma and then they can't do uh, certain exercises and they're not comfortable in doing certain exercises. So you assumed that certain exercises were okay to be done. And then through that person's experience, no, it's not okay. And then you label them perhaps without even knowing the trauma as non-compliant or something like that. Um, so we really need to be careful in how these approaches, uh, you know, uh, are perceived by our patients. And we really need to be open and creative with our approaches. If the patient says, no, uh, 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 saying that with like disagreement, I remember one of the interesting things and it's actually on the paper. Uh, I think one of my papers, there was this patient uh, on my research that uh, so the, the physio really wanted for him to do a squat. Uh, it would help you know, his knee, um, his knee function, um, it will strengthen his quad and etc. And he was like, no, this body doesn't do squat. <laughs> right up front. And then the physio was like, it's okay, it's your body. Totally fine. So the way that the physio approached that was really beautiful, was really non-judgmental. You know, even though she thought, oh, of course, this the squat would be a great exercise um, to do it. But if the patient said no, that's totally fine. It's your body. You decide, you know? So that interaction was really, was a small, was a small thing, but yeah, it was really interesting uh, to watch. 
uh, and to to learn from that, you know, uh, how we just need to be non-judgmental with our patients' experiences and preferences um, as well. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, what that kind of approach can bring up for uh, a lot of clinicians and myself included is now that we've opened up that or shared that power rather we are left a bit vulnerable we're not kind of used to being this position Um, and it's scary for clinicians as well as a real kind of first person felt experience that now we don't know and and we kind of are explicit in a way we can allow ourselves to be a bit um, explicit with saying things like we're not exactly sure how the patient will respond to a given um, recommendation, for example. Um, so, so what would you suggest for, for, for managing those kind of human experiences suddenly um, where outside of our safety net of being that expert fixer role um, and now we're we're in a bit of uncertainty, and this might be a preview to our future podcast with your friend Nat- Natalia um, oh, yeah. and her work. But um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how to manage our own uh, the clinicians' uh, vulnerability with now sharing power. Oh, that's a a great question, and I think it comes down to you know community, right? It, because it's uh, for me as a um, you know, a PhD student going through those concepts and understanding power and then understanding myself and then critically reflecting as my uh, job as a clinician and as an educator was really powerful um, to have people to kind of share that with, right? To understand, to, to share that vulnerability with, to explore, okay, so within that situation, how power is operating and actually exploring those more, you know, uh, non, almost non-physio um, concepts and non-physio um, ideas sometimes uh, was really, is, it goes a long way to actually share that with your colleagues and your, you know, senior managers and understanding how, um, how that plays a role. Like, okay, instead of, you know, reading for a journal club, instead of reading this new technique let's read about communication and power dynamics and uh, social and cultural determinants of health and how that impacts in our uh, in our interaction with patients let's you know choose a, an article from a sociology or a, a psychology journal or that deals with those with those things because that's one of the uh, interesting things about power dynamics i think psychology also uh, especially because of that type of relationship uh, that shares much more intimate um, aspects of, uh, of patients and clients' aspects. They have a lot of research about power dynamics as well. So it's uh, perhaps we should, you know, come together uh, in communities of practices or, of, you know, uh, sharing with with someone that you trust about those vulnerabilities and maybe even being open to those vulnerabilities within physiotherapy, right? Sometimes we, we're not allowed not to know or not uh, allowed to, we need to know the answer all the time. And, um, you know, Natalia has done a beautiful work on uncertainty uh, and mentioning how it's powerful to actually explore uncertainty 
with the patients and sit with their emotions um, through that. And we really need to do that for ourselves um, as well, really exploring our vulnerabilities, uh, critically reflecting on who we are, um, how we impact the world and how our identities impact how we see patients. So I think building that communities of practices, even, you know, this podcast is amazing to have uh, conversations about power within physiotherapy and exploring that, you know, so that's, that's um, still a huge, um, it's not a, done a lot doing, but I think it's improving, right? Exploring more concepts and more things sometimes that it seems outside of physiotherapy, but actually is very related to our physiotherapy practice. Yeah, love that. The We can't do this alone. And I think uh, the first step is maybe acknowledging that we need support and we need uh, people, supportive colleagues, spaces, contexts where we can feel safe to discuss these concepts that can be quite different and uh, mm. awkward, maybe embarrassing. Uh, I think I'm trying to name all the emotions that I, I felt and I still feel these days with uh, applying some of these concepts and um, having these spaces are essential. I think um, I always reflect on other healthcare professionals, how supervision, clinical supervision is, is mandatory as a space for that reflective practice. Um, it may not always be uh, critically reflexive, but it is still that space with a colleague so you're guided, you're not alone, um, and you can express what you're going through. I think there's so many different avenues, and hopefully this conversation and podcast can be shared amongst colleagues. Um, and this leads to the, the next topic is maybe there, there is um, space to reflect on, on what we do discuss and um, who kind of can set that agenda for what clinicians discuss, what what we research, what we debate um, in the world of the wild world of social media. Um, mm. So, uh, as a open ended uh, discussion, who is the one setting the mm. agenda? <laughs> if power is everywhere, uh, and yeah, how, how can we really kind of recognize uh, that we have maybe some choice in some context? to discuss some of these topics. Well, definitely. And I think, um, and what's interesting is uh, Foucault was not really interested in, um, you know, saying exactly who uh, holds the power or, because we all at some point will hold um, the power perhaps to make decisions, right? To set the agenda of what is being discussed in our own um, circle, in a our own clinic in our own uh, context, right? So I think, think, of course, that we have, um, and, and one of the, the the things about the uh, San Diego Pain Summit, right, is a conference that is very, very different from any other conference uh, related to, to pain, because it really opens up discussions about about power, about gender, about, you know, this very, um, in complex and deep thinking stuff. <laughs> so it's perhaps even the conferences, if you if you think about sometimes they, they have beautiful, and they are changing to be honest, uh, but usually they're very pretty much focused on, you know, quantitative research, very um, limited and 
constrain um, talks about our profession. Uh, I think the World Physiotherapy Conference is another you know, great platform to think about our profession in, in a very broader way. But I think the, the question of who sets you know, the agenda for what we discuss, uh, what we research and what we uh, debate, it comes um, to what it brings more uh, more power sometimes, right? Like uh, I think as a qualitative researcher, it's really interesting to see how difficult sometimes it is to publish qualitative research, for example, right? Because we are not used to certain we are used to ways um, used to certain ways of doing qualitative research, but not sometimes others which are more related to sociology and using concepts and etc. So it's, I think our assumptions about what research is, um, about what can be discussed in physiotherapy, kind of it's, um, uh, it's also reflected on our education system, our um, healthcare system, our, uh, who, what research gets funded, which um, gets not, gets not funded and et cetera. So um, yeah, I don't exactly, I don't have a, um, a proper saying on who gets um, to, to set the agenda, but I believe that we all have power to have certain shared decision-making on our own context and what we decide um, as, a, as a collective to actually uh, discuss, right? Because we, we do know that uh, broader social, cultural and political aspects of, of our systems and our health kind of indicate what what gets prioritized sometimes right sometimes um we, we get that that agenda but i think if we kind of push if we have you know that saying that that conversation or oh, perhaps we can discuss this this article or we can discuss this concept as a group in our clinic in our um, university we can kind of have different conversations and start from there you know, we can we can change um, certain ways of thinking and acting. It requires a lot, uh, to be honest. Sometimes we don't think it's within our scope. Is it within our scope? It is not. But having those conversations, how that relates to our scope, how that relates to our interactions with patients, I think questioning our profession, questioning our role as physios, and also evolving on those concepts, I think um, it 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 makes a difference in a long run um, as well. And the uh, tricky question and tricky subject that didn't expect a straight answer in a very black or white. Um, it's a kind of, it's interesting reflecting on it. Now the, uh, ho hopefully this can provide that uh, space to observe what does get discussed amongst uh, our community because uh, we rely on our community and we are within that healthcare system that can be influenced by so many different uh, factors uh, kind of outside of our control for the large part and seeing what we can, I think that that can open up the opportunity for uh, what we can offer and what we can explore and what we can discuss and, and raise. Um, and there is huge potential in that collective voice. Um, and I think the, the other side is what doesn't get discussed as much mm. and what doesn't get researched or what isn't debated which is an interesting question to 
to ponder um, looking at all these um, kind of social determinants of healthcare. And uh, I personally feel quite overwhelmed with with the the huge impact and influence that these can have. And um, acknowledging that we are individual clinicians, maybe this can be a helpful step to towards addressing some of the bigger picture uh, issues in um, very much impacting our individual practice. Exactly. And it is, sometimes it can be overwhelming to think about this broader um, aspects of care, right? The social, cultural determinants of health. But I think linking back to critical reflexivity and how power privilege is also uh, incorporated within our identities, right? There are small things that we can do as clinicians um, to help even, uh, you know, as you mentioned, like having those, instead of just reflecting on what you did, like critically reflecting on uh, the assumptions that you had with your patients, with, you know, another clinician, uh, understanding, oh, perhaps this, this patient actually uh, doesn't have, or even asking, oh, do you have, you know, uh, financial conditions to continue with our uh, our our approach here, our sessions. If not, I can, you know, you have something ready for them um, to just support them throughout. Oh, there is this hospital, there is this community clinic or something like that, right? You can even do bolder things, uh, having once a week, a couple of hours to do some pro bono. You don't have to, but that's, that's something that we can do um, individually. And then as collective, uh, doing something in the clinic, um, even through our associations as well to give more of that um, of that sense of really um, thinking about this cultural and uh, social determinants of health and how we can impact on that, like in, in smaller steps and even bigger steps as well. But we can all do that in, um, in our clinics, you know, critically reflect on your assumptions and kind of uh, not allow your assumptions to be uh, to dictate how you see patients and how you treat patients as well. It's quite complex, but I think we can always do something uh, because it, it's it's really, when I present things about power dynamics, it's really good to see, you know, how clinicians really want to understand those concepts and really want to explore that within their context. So there is this desire, there is this appetite for uh, thinking broader, right? We just need to have more discussions about that. And to be honest, of course, I'm not the first or the only person to speak about uh, about power. You have amazing um, researchers. You have the critical uh, physiotherapy network. You have Professor David um, Nichols. You have my amazing supervisor uh, and really amazing um, physios and organizations who are starting to talk about more um, about those concepts and what does that mean within physiotherapy so yeah it's it's really great how see uh, to see how our profession is actually expanding certain discussions there's so much great work that uh, i feel is uh underappreciated and not recognized enough so i think that's amazing that there's there is something about why we became healthcare professionals in there and that desire that you talked about and that passion that we can absolutely feel and uh, explore, expand and, and um, really use, I think, 
it can be easy to be overwhelmed and uh, stop acting on things and want to kind of ignore or uh, that there's that inaction that it can lead to. Mm. But I think we can acknowledge uh, that there is a lot of work to be done. And there are also lots of people out there doing some of this fantastic work, such as yourself and fellow researchers. So um, currently we've, we've explored so many topics and gone deep and I'm loving it. And um, there's the, the classic kind of take home message point of if we were to summarize um, for some, some uh, suggestions based on your work, based on your research, what, what do you hope clinicians can take, take home and, and start practicing, applying and exploring? Uh, I think um, that, you know, this message that power is everywhere is one of the things that really impacted me. So I hope um, the listeners really think about even, as I mentioned, what is written in the assessment form uh, or the intake form, what is omitted, what is not. So all of those things that speak to power. What is, you know, presented in your clinical wall, the, the walls on the clinic? Uh, do you usually have, you know, pictures that embrace, um, you know, every everybody, uh, different body shapes, different body sizes, different uh, races, different. So how your clinic actually presents itself. Uh, also in how you um, as a clinician, like the, your identities, your experiences also shape how you interact with others, right? And as a physio as well, what you were taught to actually focus on and sometimes explore a little bit more what are the other things that you can explore with your patients um, and within your own um, knowledge? So I think the concept of, you know, critical reflexivity or really challenging the assumptions and attitudes and beliefs that you, you hold um, in a personal level, but also what physiotherapy actually tends to, um, you know, as a, as a profession kind of drives our um, our thinking and really challenge that. Oh, perhaps I can explore more about those things and what can I do within my practice, right? How can I actually be collaborative with my patient? And I don't have a an answer, like a right answer to that, but I think what is important is this exploration, is this um, curiosity of, okay, how can I, you know, um, explore that with my patient, how I can make that more clear, what type of patient I usually see, what type of demographic, and actually explore, um, you know, the community that your your clinic is in, or where do you work, and how you can tailor that to that community, to that um, patient's demographic as well, and tailor your um, communication style, your non-verbal, verbal and non-verbal communication, right, which is really important and, and really making sure that the patient is part of, uh, of the process, but also without making assumptions that every patient has the, the power, the privilege to be empowered, or how can you make that interaction less uh, transactional um, as well, more related to who is the person in, in front of me, but how do I usually see the person in, in front of me, going back to the example on the disabled uh, woman who was, um, you know, not treated as uh, how she really was, but also how the assumptions within 
her was more powerful than what she really was. So, yeah, so I think really exploring concepts, how power dynamics operate within my consultation and explore that with uh, with colleagues as well and, and really talk about uh, that um, with your peers, with your uh, clinical supervisors as well. Amazing. That's so much in there and uh, so many places to start. I think just taking that one small step and even the the concept of reflecting is a step, I feel, an action step mm. very much so uh, in this journey of continual learning and continually reflecting. For me, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm sure there's so many gems for listeners. And if any of the listeners are keen to contact you, reach out. And, and also explore some of your work. Where can we find you? Um, yeah, and just uh, to, to finish up, thank you so much uh, for inviting me. It has been uh, a pleasure. I know that I'm not a very good person on objective, objective thinking, like three steps or... <laughs> top three really... secrets no one wants to know about. Yeah, top three secrets. Um, I really like to you know, ask questions, I guess, as a person um, and kind of really reflect on, on, on those big questions without a clear answer. So maybe that's a, that's a me thing. Um, so uh, listeners can find me through, you know, Google Scholar. Um, you, uh, I can share my, my email as well. Uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to ask uh, any questions about about myself, about my research, about my journey as well, because sometimes people really want to do a PhD, perhaps within a more sociological, like I say that my thesis is between two worlds, like physiotherapy and sociologists, and and there's not many of us, um, right, in, uh, in, in the world. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm happy to, to share my experience. Of course, there are many others who did that work, um, but yeah, if you're keen happy to to have an email uh and through twitter as well my twitter handle is at karimi miskoto so my name uh, you can find me there as well um through i always share some uh, new research that i did or some yeah random uh, things about uh, thoughts that i had or um uh, research uh, articles that I've seen that is interesting. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. Amazing. Kermi, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the, the care and your generosity today in, in sharing as well. It's, it's quite inspiring for myself and also for a, a lot of clinicians that I have been mentoring. So appreciate all that you do. Keep up the amazing work and until next time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, and yeah, until next time.